Well, good evening. We had better get started. Time is already uh, ticking away, so join me in a word of prayer, and we're going to start our evening study for tonight. Let's open together in a word of prayer. Our great and gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this church, a place where we can gather with with, uh, those who love you and call upon the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior, and and study your word and worship you and, and lift high your name. We want to do that tonight as we get into studying the atonement, the, the, really the, the core of the gospel, the heart of, of the scriptures, what you have done for us through sending your son, Christ, to die on that cross and, and all that took place there that we want to explore tonight. Bless this study and help us to, to really understand the atonement and to rightly respond with, with worship and lives lived over for you. Bless our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, tonight we are... We're back. We're resuming our Doctrines of Grace study. We've been off for a few weeks uh, here and there. I had vacations. Oliver filled in for a couple weeks. And we've made it through a lot uh, in this study on the Doctrines of Grace here on Wednesday nights. There's still, you know, I guess you could say a, a big second half to come. We've made it through maybe the first half covering big, huge topics like man's total depravity and limited ability, as well as all things related to election and predestination. A lot of time with that in the, the months gone by. And now we're getting to some new topics here, and the next being really the atonement and issues related to the atonement. And so we're going to start off with basically an, an introduction to the atonement. And you'll see how it ties into the doctrines of grace in a little bit. But just to start off and talk about the atonement, to ask you, to ask yourself, how well do you understand the atonement? Do you know what we mean when we, we reference the atonement? Do you know what that that's referring to and what its significance is? I'm sure you've heard the word before referenced in sermon titles and studies. You've surely, I hope, seen the word in Scripture, like the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement. There's movies today called Atonement or the Atonement or this or that. But when it comes to the the biblical term, the biblical concept, do you have a handle on what it means and its significance? If you had a little time, if you came a little early, maybe you had a minute to fill out that first question in your handout. Just keep that for yourself rhetorically, but if you had to define or explain to someone, they say, what's, what's the atonement in the Bible? What's that really mean? Or what's that about? Could you do that? And what would you, what would you say? What would you come up with? Well, atonement, as a theological concept, speaks of the means by which God and man are reconciled. The means by which God and man are reconciled. All world religions seem to understand that humans have done something wrong before God or the gods, we're sinners, we fall short, we, we are separate from God, we've offended God, or there's something wrong here, and we're down here, God's up there, we need to get to him, we want to get to him, or, or the gods. And so consequently, all world religions have proposed a means, a mechanism of getting right with God, of appeasing the deity, reconciling with God, i.e. making atonement, making some sort of amends with God. And atonement basically answers the question of how man is made right before God, made right with God. The difference is that all world religions, they propose an atonement based on merit, atoning for all that is wrong, making up for all that is wrong through human merit. It's up to man to atone for himself and his own sins or misdeeds through good deeds, through self-sacrifice, through suffering, even through money, man must make reparations to God, erase his own sin and guilt, and in some form, pay back his debts. And as I hope and trust you know, biblical Christianity sets itself apart with the, with the perspective that, that God alone 
makes atonement himself on our behalf. He's the only one who can do so sufficiently, and, and that's, that's what the gospel is, the message that he has done so, of course, in and through Christ. Christianity alone states that God has accomplished and he's provided the only means by which we can be reconciled to God forever. That, that, that all that is wrong between us, this, this sin, this debt of sin, that God himself can atone for that sin and to, you could say, so to speak, make it right, whereby we can be reconciled to him again. And the means by which God makes atonement has nothing to do with us and our efforts, contrary to every other worldview and world religion. Rather, it has everything to do with Jesus Christ and his efforts, specifically his efforts on the cross, what he did on the cross. That's where, that's the place, the time where God, the Father, was making atonement through the sacrifice of the Son that later would be applied to individuals through the Holy Spirit. So that, that's what the atonement is all about, biblically speaking. Now, naturally, there's, there's a lot more. The atonement is at the very heart of Christianity itself, without exaggeration. Without the atonement, there's no gospel, there's no good news, there's no salvation. And so you would do well to get to know the atonement extremely well. And that's why I asked you, and in a way rhetorically, how would you describe it or explain it? Just to kind of gauge, for your own sake, how well you, you understand the atonement. And well, really, wherever you're at, you could, you could do with learning more about the atonement. Now, the doctrine of the atonement intersects the doctrines of grace. That we, that's what this Wednesday night series is all about. Primarily concerning the extent of the atonement. And that really, that's the question, for whom did Jesus die? Or you've heard it before. Did Jesus die only for the elect? Or did he die for the whole world? For the sins of the world? That's the, the ancient question. And in future weeks, we'll get to it. We have to build up to it, though. Before you can really handle the extent of the atonement, you better know what the atonement is all about, what it really signifies, what Jesus was doing on the cross. What was he truly accomplishing on the cross? We need this foundation. Really, just in and of itself, that's just Bible study we want to do. Even if we never talk about the extent of the atonement, this is beneficial to study the atonement. But we will see in, in the later weeks how it does intersect and informs, and as we continue studying, uh, the extent of the atonement, answering, for whom did Jesus die? And that's a massive question. We'll get to it. Well, I find, to both to answer that question and just uh, in your own Christian life, an understanding of the atonement is essential but I find that a lot of Christians don't have that solid of a grasp on the atonement. It's one of these Christian buzzwords you hear, but if you're, if you're pinned down to try and explain it to someone or describe it, you might be at a little loss for words. So I just want to help with that, especially in this first introductory lesson to help you really get the atonement where you can leave and sing it. I think I, I, think I get it at least at a good fundamental level. Not just for the sake of head knowledge, although I do want to inform you and teach you tonight, but also this, this should be the foundation of our worship. Because when you realize what the triune God did for you, for his glory, of course, but really for us as well on our behalf, in making atonement for you, it produces deep reverence and worship, and, and rightly so. So that's what we're going to do tonight, an introduction to the atonement, giving you that, that bottom la layer of foundation. Starting off with atonement in the Old Testament. Atonement in the Old Testament. 
Now, if you know your Old Testament, how was atonement made in the Old Testament? By what means did God give the Israelites to be right with him? Sacrifices, the sacrificial system. Just read Leviticus and you'll get caught up to speed pretty fast. Now, we're not going to cover the sacrificial system in great detail tonight. But suffice it to say that when Israel sinned, God had prescribed a means for the atonement of their sins, by which they could be reconciled to God. Through offering sacrifices, people could be forgiven of their sins and rightly restored to God. Now, there are several different categories of these sacrifices, from the burnt offering to the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. All those were blood sacrifices. And again, we're not going to do the details, but in general, they, they pretty much went like this. The, the sinning member, the Israelite, would bring the sacrificial animal to the door of the tent of meaning, or meeting. rather, That's the tabernacle or later the temple. Perhaps a, a lamb, an unblemished lamb, depending on the, the exact sacrifice. But the, the animal had to be unblemished, signifying, of course, uh, sinlessness or uh, moral uh, perfection. Anyway, he would then place, you know, bringing the animal uh, before the priest... The, the Israelite would then place his hands on the head of the animal, uh, thereby identifying with the animal as his substitute, signifying a transferring of guilt from the person to, to the animal as a substitute. These were substitute sacrifices. The animal would then be slain, and it was quite bloody. The, the throat was slit, blood, and this was a bloody process. And uh, the death of the animal, though, was taken as punishment for the sin of the offerer. The priest would then take some of the blood of the animal and sprinkle it on the altar, really signifying really a life for a life, a death for a death. This was what was being signified here. And then the rest of the animal, either in part or in whole, would be burnt on the altar. And its fragrance would be pictured as rising up to God as a pleasing aroma, whereby he accepts this sacrifice, accepts this atonement. That's, that's the, the basic picture of, of a sacrifices in the Old Testament. What was the effect of such sacrifices in the Old Testament? Well, over a hundred times it says that these sacrifices were to make atonement. That, that the old, over a hundred times the Old Testament says these sacrifices were to make atonement. The Old Testament word kafar carries with it the idea of propitiating God's wrath and restoring fellowship between God and man. And so as the Israelite approached these sacrifices with genuine faith and repentance, he would be forgiven of his offenses and atonement was made. However, understand this was an imperfect and incomplete atonement. Imperfect and incomplete. The sacrificial system made a covering for sins, but not a complete payment for sins. It's probably the best way to think about it, the most helpful way to remember at the Old Testament sacrifices, you could picture them covering sin, but not actually paying sin, paying or wiping away sin. Now, God in his mercy and patience, he accepted these provisional sacrifices on behalf of his people. And he accepted the covering of, this, of their sins, but only on the condition that a, a future perfect sacrifice would come and, and truly pay for the sins, truly pay for their, their guilt. And indeed, in Christ, of course, a perfect sacrifice was made. And his sacrifice did not merely cover sins, but actually pay for them, wipe them out, expunge their guilt, and appease God's wrath. And it's on the basis of Christ's sacrifice 
that all sins are, of God's people are paid for, Old Testament and New Testament. That's Romans 3.25. You can read that reference on your own. Now understand again that the Israelite received an imperfect and incomplete atonement before God. His fellowship with God was provisional because the true sacrifice of Christ had not yet been made. This is why the Jews in the Old Testament, they were always kept at an arm's length from God, that they couldn't enter that Holy of Holies. They were always somewhat separate because of the provisional nature of their salvation and this atonement sacrifice. So you have a little bit of notes in your, uh, your handout here. And it looks like we're looking for more copies. I think you might have to just run a few more. I'll, I'll make more next time. Sorry about that. If you, didn't, if you don't have a copy, maybe look on with a neighbor. But Old Testament sacrifices, they could not cleanse the human heart and the conscience. Those are synonyms in a sense. I read for you Hebrews 9.9. 9. Speaking of the old sacrifices, it says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. This is talking about our heart problem. You know before God we have not, not just a deed problem, but a heart problem. Our hearts are defiled. Our conscience is defiled. The heart is deceitfully sick. And that problem needs to be fixed. The mind, the conscience are in rebellion against God. And Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do anything about that. They, they couldn't affect your heart. They had no power to cleanse and perfect your heart, your mind, your conscience, your inner man. Also, Old Testament sacrifices could not fully atone for sins. Hebrews 10 one says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. These sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near. They were not sufficient. And verse 4 in Hebrews 10 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this was not a complete atonement, a sufficient atonement. It was a provisional atonement. And then lastly, Old Testament sacrifices could not permanently atone for sins. This goes, it should go without saying, if it's not sufficient, it's also not permanent. This is explicitly described, for example, Hebrews 9.25 speaks of the high priest, not that he would offer uh, himself often, speaking of Christ, but the high priest In the Old Testament, they would enter the holy place year by year. They were making sacrifices year after year, and in fact, day after day. And Hebrews 10, 11 says, Every priest, Old Testament, stands ministering daily and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And that kind of sums it up. That's the Old Testament sacrificial system. The priest offering daily. He stands daily, offering daily, Time after time, the same sacrifices, they can never take away sins. Again, God accepted a provisional covering, but it was incomplete, insufficient, and imperfect. In the Old Testament, therefore, we're left waiting for a perfect sacrifice that would come and, and really take away the people's sins. These sacrifices couldn't take them away permanently, uh, but they were left waiting for one that could. And, of course, this transitions us to atonement in the New Testament. Now, I asked you, how is atonement in the Old Testament described? By what means did God give to to make atonement 
for the people in the Old Testament? The answer is sacrificial system. How would you answer that question for the New Testament? How is atonement made for God's people in the New Testament? Because gone is a sacrificial system. So how is atonement made for us in the New Testament? Through Jesus. Yeah, there you go. And that wasn't a trick question. Through Christ on the cross. Through Christ on the cross. It, it's still a sacrificial system. It's just changed. Changed a bit, right? The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was in fact fulfilled by Jesus and therefore not part of the, the new covenant under which we are. But the clear teaching of the New Testament in, in Christ inaugurating that new covenant that Jesus was going to provide a new means of atoning for the sins of his people. Remember, Christianity, we don't make atonement. God, in his grace and his mercy, the, the good news is he makes atonement on our behalf. That's really our only hope. And he's now in the New Testament through Christ revealing he's going to do that in a new way. And, and this new means that God was giving was his son himself. Christ himself was going to be the means by which God was going to make this new and perfect atonement, the sacrifice of his son on the cross, the cross becoming like the new altar. So in your notes, in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices, Christ's sacrifice can cleanse the human heart and uh, conscience. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Precisely what Old Testament sacrifices could not do, Hebrews tells us New Testament Christ uh, sacrifice could do. He can cleanse our heart, even give us new hearts. He can fully atone for sins. I'll read Hebrews 10, 8 through 10. It says, after saying, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. He's quoting the Old Testament here. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Speaking of the Messiah. Verse 9 says, He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And then he says, By this, or by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus can fully atone for sins. And like we just read in verse 12, permanently atone for sins. This is a once for all event. This is not repeated This was a once-for-all, sufficient, complete, perfect sacrifice for sins. We'll leave it at that uh, for now when it comes to Hebrews. I don't want to steal too much of my own thunder. Because in God's providence, sometimes this just works out. What we're studying tonight on Wednesday perfectly dovetails into the Sunday sermon. When we're talking about uh, solus Christus, Christ alone, and the sufficiency of his work. It's not repeated we don't need to re-sacrifice them through the Mass. Uh, it's once for all. So I'll leave it there. I don't want to steal too much from Sunday. Anyway, that being said, though, as you know, the death of Jesus on the cross, therefore, it's really it's the center of the New Testament and really the, the Bible itself. Christ's life and his teachings, his deeds, his miracles, all very important, right? Think of all his teaching. 
and his, his deeds, his miracles. It's, it's very important stuff. It really is. It's extremely significant, and it is necessary. But the core of his work was his death on the cross. No death, no atonement. If he didn't say a word, if he never taught anything, and he still died on the cross, there could still be atonement. But without that death on the cross, there, there could be no atonement. And that's why, you know, the Latin word for cross is crux, from which we get the word crucial, and the saying the crux of the matter, it's just a way of saying this is the, the heart, this is the core. And so naturally the cross, what I'm trying to emphasize, it's, it's the, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the New Testament, the heart of God's plan for atonement. It's about the cross. So much so that Paul can say this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's think about that statement. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If, if you get Christ crucified, you, you get the core of the gospel. So hopefully you get the paramount importance of Christ's death on the cross. But still want us to ask, why exactly is it so important? What's so special about his death on the cross? How exactly did Jesus make uh, this new atonement on the cross? Now, I've said before, lots of ancient people died on crosses. The Romans crucified tens of thousands. So what makes Christ's death on the cross so different, so special? Well, much more took place on Christ's cross concerning his person than, than meets the eye, perhaps, at first. So we want to further explore this. If you get wrong what Jesus was truly accomplishing on the cross, you get the gospel wrong. You, you get the heart of the gospel wrong, and that's pretty significant, right? So let's further explore this. We'll go next to theories of the atonement. I don't have to include this section. We'll, we'll try and make it quick, but for the sake of exposure, I do want to first expose you to some other theories of the atonement. All understand that in the New Testament, atonement came through the death of Jesus. But throughout church history, some have suggested different ways of understanding both the nature of the atonement and the impact of his death. In other words, what was he really doing on the cross? What, what, what was he really accomplishing on the cross? And how did he really make atonement on the cross? Different ways of answering that. So we'll, we'll go over first the wrong answers and then lastly the right answer. But again, for exposure, and it'll help you understand facets of the atonement, but they're really incomplete pictures. That's where these views suffer. So first, the ransom theory. Some in the past have believed that there is this cosmic struggle between good and evil and God versus Satan. And after the fall, all of humanity fell under Satan's domain. And he ruled over all people with complete power. And so for God, if God wanted to rescue his people, well, they're under Satan's domain now. And so God has to ransom humanity from Satan's power and his grasp. And to do this, God has to offer a ransom. And so he offered his son in exchange for the release of all the souls held captive by Satan. It's a prisoner exchange, basically. God the Son, Jesus, for all the souls that Satan held captive. And so God did this. The ransom price was paid. Souls were released from Satan's domain that God could, you know, ransom them and buy them back. And instead, Satan gained dominion over Jesus, whom he then killed on the cross. 
However, Satan was fooled by the veiled deity of Jesus, for Jesus rose victoriously from the dead, and he conquered death itself. If you, uh, you've seen the movie or read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you've seen a picture of the ransom theory, whether you know it or not. Near the end of the book, Aslan, the lion, the lion king, who obviously, if you don't know, he represents Christ. He, uh, Edmund, has done wrong, and he's under the dominion of the, white, of the white queen. So Aslan, the lion king, he presents himself to the white queen as a ransom. He will give his life to free Edmund from her rightful grasp, because she has rights over Edmund now. And so Aslan gives himself up. The, Edmund is released. And then she, of course, kills Aslan. And the White Queen thinks she's won a great victory. Right? This is a great deal. She finally killed her enemy, the, the Lion King. But then Aslan rises from the dead on the third day, much to her surprise. Death could not hold him. And this is just C.S. Lewis's allegory of the ransom theory of the atonement. Now, this view is popularized by many in the early church. That The issue was back then, they, so many approached the Bible and they allegorized it. And that, that's where this really comes from. When you, when you take scripture and you and allegorize it and your interpretation, this is where you get stuff like this. And there are some kernels of truth in this idea. It's true. Christ's death on the cross was a victory over sin and Satan and death. That's true. Colossians 2.15 said Jesus, he did disarm the forces of, of, uh, the forces of Satan and evil uh, in his death. His death was ultimately a victory over evil. Yeah, we can agree with that. No problem. But this theory suffers. It has a way too high view of Satan. You know, way too high view of Satan. Satan is not an omnipotent sovereign force in the universe. It is true that all humanity can be described as enslaved to Satan after the fall, meaning held under his influence. We've seen that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But Satan never makes demands of God, and Satan is never a being who needs to be appeased in Scripture. He doesn't have that much power. Now, again, it is true that Christ's death was a ransom, right? Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's, you know, one of the verses they use. But understand, to whom was Jesus paying the ransom of his life? Not to believers. To God. He wasn't paying ransom to Satan or to us, but to God. To God the Father. It was the Father's wrath that needed to be appeased because of our just, uh, the just consequences of our sin. So understand, Jesus was really saving us from God, not from Satan. He was saving us from God. That kind of sounds weird, but meaning God's wrath that was due our sin. And so he was saving us from that wrath by dying in our place. So the, this first theory, the, uh, uh, the, the ransom theory, I'm blank for a second, has a kernel of truth, but ultimately falls short. Secondly, the moral influence theory, the moral influence theory. Others have suggested that Christ's death on the cross actually accomplished nothing objective. Nothing objective. In other words, God didn't require any penalty to be paid. God, he had, he had no wrath against humanity that he's looking to, to, to pour out that needs to be pacified. There was no obstacle that Jesus removed on the cross that enables us to get to God. They, they deny all of that. 
And so then what, what was the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross? If you, if you remove all that stuff, why did he die? And the answer they give is that God sent Jesus to die as an example, as the ultimate example of sacrificial love and moral behavior. Christ's death on the cross, since he was the, the innocent one, it was such an example of sacrificial love that through it, God, was, God would be wooing people to follow Jesus and live a moral life like him. And that's why this is called the moral influence theory. Through this supreme display of God's love and sacrifice on the cross, he is influencing people to follow Jesus, to love God, to love others like Jesus. This view originated from one medieval theologian, but not surprisingly picked up and championed by later liberal theologians. This is, this is the view of liberal Christianity. Liberal theologians, they're desperate to shift the focus away from the cross. And you know, let's not talk about the cross and sin and wrath and judgment and, and shift the focus onto the teachings of Jesus and the compassionate deeds of Jesus. And they want to downplay the, the wrath of God and the seriousness of sin. That, and if you do that, you don't really need a savior on the cross. You don't really need a savior. Man is basically good. Doesn't quite need saving like Christians have thought. And so this view fits right in with liberal theology. And they, they picked it right up in the 1800s. Now again, there's an element of truth here. A little kernel. Namely that Christ's life and death they do serve as examples for the flock, right? We're told that in several passages that his death on the cross is an example for us to love others, to lay down our life for others, to serve others, to suffer like Jesus did. That's clear in the New Testament. No problem with that. But the New Testament is crystal clear that Christ's death was way more than an example. That's, that's a very secondary aspect of the atonement. He was an example, yes, but he's not merely an example. There is a lot more going on than just an example of love on the cross. An actual transaction took place where Jesus was appeasing the wrath of God for our sins. And if you eliminate the substitutionary sacrifice element of the atonement, you're eliminating the actual good news of the atonement. Because the real display of God's love on the cross was not in the fact that he's just giving an example, but that he's freeing us from all of our sins. That's what makes the cross truly loving, that he was saving us from judgment. So again, this one falls very far short, as it's put. Third, the governmental theory. The governmental theory. This view contends that Jesus didn't die to pay for specific sins or particular sins, but just sin in general. He died to pay for sin just as a general concept, nothing specific. His death was not an equivalent payment for sin or a full payment for sin. It's a token payment for sin. That's the key word, a token payment for sin. God's justice didn't really demand specific payment for all of our sins. Rather, God chose to punish Jesus in order to show that God takes sin seriously and that God was upholding his moral order over the universe. And that's why this is called the governmental theory. That God's still in control, basically. God was showing his control over evil on the cross. That he, he is willing to deal with evil and, and to show his power and to preserve his moral government. Now, since Jesus was sinless, Christ wasn't punished on the cross. He merely suffered on the cross. 
And so like the example theory, his suffering showcased the seriousness of sin and it motivates sinners to participate in God's moral order. So basically, Christ's death on the cross, in this view, it shows the ugliness of sin. It warns man against the future consequences of his sin if he doesn't repent. And it deters future sin by striking fear into people. And Christ offered to the Father a token offering, but the whole concept of substitutionary atonement is missing here. This view was developed by a man named Hugo Grotius. He was the student of Arminius. And we've been talking about Arminianism. So this is really the view of the atonement held by many Arminians, which is why I bring it up. Otherwise, it's, it's actually not, I think, super popular, but it's relevant because in this Doctrines of Grace study, we're looking so much at the contrast between Calvinism and Arminianism. And so this is, you know, for a lot of Arminians, though, this is their view. Grotius was looking to find a view of the atonement that wasn't, Calvinistic, but also wasn't universalistic or universalism. And, uh, and so he came up with this governmental theory. God just showing his control of the universe with this token offering of Jesus on the cross. Now, one more time, I'll say this um, just in brief. There are some truths here that God was showing his hatred of sin on the cross. That's true. We can agree to that statement. And he was upholding the moral order of the universe on the cross. That, that's true in essence. But what this view fails to realize is that if any sin goes unpunished, if a single sin is not met with justice in some sort, well, then God's moral order is defeated. And this is why the New Testament teaches that Jesus definitely did pay for specific sins, for actual sins, not sin in general or some token offering, But it's very important to understand he made a definite and complete payment for sin. God can't just look the other way for sin. Someone's got to pay. Either you pay for your sins, and that's where you go to hell for, or Christ pays for your sins, as it's been often said. And his was not a token offering, but a complete offering for all the sins of his people. And that's where this view falls short. We'll see some of that difference come out later in the in some studies in the future well let's finish up now with the last theory uh and since there's others you know some would call it a theory but for us this is this at least to me this is the crystal clear teaching of scripture but it's the penal substitution theory of the atonement or view of the atonement penal substitution view this view clearly states that christ's death on the cross was a penal substitution you might ask well What does that really mean? It's not as complicated as it sounds. Just think of the two words. First, Christ's death was penal, meaning he bore the penalty of sin. He was being penalized. He was being punished on the cross. He wasn't just suffering, but he was being punished. He was suffering for sin on the cross. That's the first word. This was a punishment for sin. The same punishment we would have in hell forever. He was bearing on the cross. Now you might ask, well, how, how can that be? Jesus was sinless. Well, that's very much true, of course. But the second word, substitution, his death was also substitutionary, meaning he bore the penalty, not for his own sins, but for our sins. He had no sins of his own, but he was being penalized for our sins. 
And so this was a penal substitution atonement. He was penalized for the sins of others. This view starts with a biblical understanding of the sin problem. Sin is a violation of God's law and results in the just penalty of death, physical death and spiritual death. And us being fallen sinners, there's nothing we can do to meet the law's demands. And being violators, there's nothing we can do to escape sin's penalty. And so, left to ourselves, all will simply be forced to suffer eternal separation from God's goodness, knowing only his wrath, which is his just consequence for our sins. But, as you know, I I hope, I trust you know, God devised a plan in his love to save his people. And that plan started with election, which we've already studied, where God decreed to save some for his glory. But God then devised a provision of this salvation. There's a plan of salvation, and then he, he, he made a plan for the uh, provision of this salvation. Like I said before, God can't sweep our sin under the rug or ignore our debt. His justice demands all wrongs be made right. He is perfectly good, and all wrongs in the universe, all affronts to his holiness, must be made right, and that, that's what judgment is all about. So how can God save us when we are under his judgment and deserve it? Well, he devised a plan, a provision to save us based on his love, his self-giving love. And the provision of God's atonement, the the means by which he'd reconcile us, centers, therefore, on Jesus. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, God the Son, He would take on human flesh, apart from sin, of course, and he would secure the forgiveness and the righteousness needed for God's people to enter heaven. How would he do this? Well, first by living a perfect life, thereby fulfilling the demands of the law and fulfilling all righteousness, and also by his substitutionary death, where on the cross Jesus bore God's wrath on our behalf. So he he took our place on the cross. He died the death we deserved to give us a life we don't deserve, eternal life. And by his death, we can be forgiven and made righteous. And Jesus then rose on the third day where he did claim victory over sin and Satan and even death itself, which is our, all three of these are mortal enemies. In removing sin and affording us righteousness Jesus thereby, through this atonement, he brought about our reconciliation with God. The means by which we can be fully reconciled with God. Being fully fully human, he could be this substitute for humans. Being fully divine, he could be a sufficient substitute for humans, uh, for all humanity. He could be a perfect substitute. And this is why Jesus is the only way. He's the only true atonement, the only means by which you can be reconciled to God. There's no other atonement, no other way which you can make things right. And God has provided no other means. This is it. Christ is the only door that God has said, enter through. And through what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, you can be saved and reconciled. So this is the biblical model 
of the atonement, the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. And next time, I want to further explore this and also display it from Scripture. Because I understand, and I'm just giving you these four views and haven't really backed it up with Scripture. But this is so significant, this biblical understanding of the atonement. You guys have heard these words before. I think you know this, but we're going to come back next week for one more dose and take now this view, that, with the biblical view, even further, show you from Scripture where it is, why it is, and more about what it means, that you can, you can get even more equipped in your understanding of the atonement. We'll come back for another dose and look at key facets of the atonement, like propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, ransom, conquest. These are all facets of, of the diamond that is the atonement. And we need to understand all the different angles, how they fit, how they relate, and just give you a good, well-orbed view of the atonement. And from then, we'll, get, we'll start worrying about the extent of the atonement. For whom did Jesus die? Well, let's finish. Then I'll read for you, and we can remember and, and pause to thank God. In the words of Romans 8, 31 through 32, who didn't spare his own son. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We can be reminded already, even though there's more to come, of what God did for us through the giving of his son, that in his self-giving and electing love, he chose to give his son over for us, not even sparing the perfect son of God that we could be forgiven. We didn't deserve that at all, but he did that for us and we will praise him for that. So let's do that now. We'll come back next week for part two. Lord God, thank you for not sparing your only son. You were not bound to save us, but once you decreed to do so, once you put that plan into action, we can, well, we can sure say thank you for it, that we benefit from your self-giving love through the giving of your son, Jesus, to die on that cross and raise from the dead uh, for our forgiveness, for our righteousness. This is the only way we can be reconciled to you. We acknowledge our sin, our guilt, that we deserve judgment. But by this perfect, once for all, unrepeatable atonement, we can stand perfectly just before you forever and with confidence because it's all based on Christ and he's perfect and the work is already done. So we take this to heart. We thank you for it and we want to leave now praising you for it. You are worthy of this praise and so we lift up our, our entire lives as now the living sacrifices to you in worship for all you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.